everyone. Welcome back to our study of 1 Samuel. We got just a little ways into the 13th chapter last week, and so that's where we'll pick up again today. Just with uh, the briefest of reviews, of course, Samuel has um, recently given uh, his farewell address. The covenant has been restored. You know, as we, as we go back, you know, Saul wins a great victory against Nahash. Uh, so things are looking good. And um, Saul, through his victory, then is confirmed by the people as their king. You have the Spirit of God rushing upon him. Um, the kingdom renewed, the covenant renewed. Um, and then, as I said, the farewell address. So uh, the foundation that has been laid for Saul and for the people is a most excellent foundation. And at this point in time, the future looks bright. We do have this ongoing prophetic warning, though, that the people, in desiring a king, have rejected the Lord as their king. And so we know that even though the Lord is giving them all these blessings and benefits and, and laying this foundation for their kingdom and, and, this, and this new office of king, um, it's not going to go well. The king is going to be corrupt. Um, the people are going to be corrupted and going to be oppressed. Uh, in ways that, uh, that God himself never would have oppressed them. And so, unfortunately, what we have here in, in chapter 13 and following is the unfolding of that inevitability. So, Saul, we have already seen hints. We've seen, we've seen some personal hints of his shyness, of uh, his, his um, externally he looks the part, Internally, he is very shy. He, I, I want to stop short of saying cowardly, but he hid in the baggage. He certainly ha is, not, is not kingly on the inside. And that becomes all the more apparent in um, chapter 13 and following. Um, the, what we don't get is a, is a long, detailed history. In fact, we see that in, in chapter 13. We're sort of brought up to speed, and in fact, it looks like some of the data has fallen out of the manuscripts. As I mentioned briefly last week at chapter 13, verse 1, you have Saul was, and then there's an ellipsis, years old, when he began to reign, and he reigned on yet another ellipsis, and two years over Israel. And um, then what we're really getting here is, in some ways, episodes toward the end of Saul's reign and episodes that um, are meant to be representative of his reign. I think that's one of the problems if you just read this superficially as if this were sort of just a point-by-point -point narrative, you run the risk of saying, wow, the Lord's judgment on Saul is quite severe. He messes up once or twice and that's it. No. These events, and they are major mess-ups that Saul does, are really representative of his entire uh, failed kingship, of his failed spirituality, um, personally, and then as the leader of the people, corporately. And so these events are representative of that. And, then, and that, too, is one thing that we've seen throughout the course, is Saul isn't a very spiritual guy. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's a silly way of putting it, I think. It's his 20th and 21st century way of putting it. He isn't very faithful. He isn't very interested in God. And what seems to be sort of an innocent kind of neutrality, just he isn't known to prophesy, he isn't known to um, you know, worship the Lord with any exuberance, that kind of thing, 
Uh, and then these things, you know, when the Spirit rushes upon him, these are alien, and people who know him even comment, hey, this isn't like him. Uh, well, these things manifest beyond sort of a quote-unquote neutrality, which of course there is no such thing, but uh, this sort of like just gray into the darker, into the bleaker and blacker side of unfaithfulness, uh, egocentrism, etc. So, without further ado, uh, King Saul, and here in juxtaposition with King Jesus with our Lord Jesus Christ uh, sitting in the background um, being everything that uh, Saul here is not. Okay, chapter 13, verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. All right, well, the important things here are probably two, namely that Saul has an army together, and it's a unified army of Israel such that there probably hasn't been exactly this since the days of Joshua when the whole people of Israel is united against uh, the peoples of, of Canaan as they're coming in in conquest of the Promised Land. Here, once again, you have a unified Israel and, and the beginnings of an army here with, with these few thousands mentioned. Second would be we have uh, Jonathan mentioned, and this is, of course, uh, Saul's son. And as we come to know, this is the first mention of him in the scriptures. Um, I think, what does it say here? Yeah, you can also look at Numbers chapter 1, it looks like. But Jonathan is important, of course, to the, to the life of David, and he's first mentioned here as a son of fighting age. That's the, the Lutheran study Bible note. So we're introduced to Jonathan. And in many respects, Jonathan, who, as I said, is the son of Saul, um, comes to be the kind of figure of Christ and comes to be a kind of uh, an antithetical figure to Saul. So we'll see that develop. Okay, we continue with the latter half of verse 2. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Again, there was this big uh, farewell address by Samuel, and Samuel reminding the people that they have rejected God and choosing for themselves a king. And yet, even so, Samuel's saying, look, I'm going to continue to pray for you, advocate for you, mediate for you, and the covenant of God still stands. So be faithful, you know, he is faithful to you, be faithful to him, and this is all going to go well. And of course, here, you know, what's in mind is like not not crass idolatry, not directly disobeying the word of the Lord, not and, and I mean in the not just in like breaking a commandment or um, committing some sin for which a sacrifice might be offered, but like, like the direct revelation of God, not just blatantly disobeying Him. Um, those are the kinds of things that are a breach of the covenant and then bring disaster upon uh, the person doing it and the people corporately. So um, this, this is all the backdrop, of course, of what's going on here. Um, then he, Saul selects his army. He's got his, his very small army and he's going to go against the Philistines with, and he sends all the people home. That's really the, the latter part of uh, verse 2. Then in verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, 
This is great. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, well, you know, the narrative is certainly uh, carving out um, other events, I mean, leaving those events out and just hitting the high points here. No sooner is there, um, you know, an, an army and there's a battle and Jonathan defeats the Philistines, but Saul is the one to blow the trumpet and he makes this announcement it, at bare minimum in an ambiguous kind of way such that he might take the credit, um, but however it is that he did it, he ends up getting the credit. And this also bespeaks sort of the arrogance of Saul, uh, lack of humility on the part of Saul, that seems to be an increasing character flaw throughout this chapter and, and the next chapters. Um, so that's the first point, is to note um, deception and egotism on the part of Saul. The second point that really drives the narrative is that uh, in this defeat of the Philistines, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like you might imagine like two countries with, with building tensions and, and they have a history of conflict and tensions are building and, and then there's this small skirmish and it's sort of this spark that ignites the fire. And that's kind of what happens here, such that um, it says that Israel became a stench to the Philistines. So things boil over and there's going to be large-scale conflict as a result of this. All right, verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Now, already you can see a problem because in the previous verses we're talking about Saul with 3,000 men of Israel sort of as his standing army or at least those who are ready to go into battle at a moment's notice. And here come the Philistines um, with not 3,000 but 30,000 and that chariots. Um, Israel did not have uh, this technology. We're going to see in the, in the next verses that Israel was way far behind technologically. Um, I think I'm going to have to look at the study note. The Philistines um, had a distinct advantage since the Israelites did not acquire chariots until the time of King Solomon. So you're talking two generations after Saul. So you're talking about 3,000 probably foot soldiers um, it doesn't say explicitly if they had horses or not, but probably foot soldiers. And then against them come 30,000 chariots, and on top of that, 6,000 horsemen, and then troops, foot soldiers, uh, like the sand of the seashore. So they, they came up and encamped in Michmash uh, to the east of beth Aven. That's verse 5. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. 
And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. All right, what you have here is nothing short of a disaster. When the Philistines come at Israel in full force, um, like they had not done in some time, if ever before, or at least with this amount of military might, the people crumble. Now, here you can see the, uh, the faithlessness of the people and how far the people are from God, and this under Saul's leadership, how far Saul himself is from God. Because there's not even a hint of, let us cry out to the Lord, will the Lord save us? There's not even a hint at this point of um, going to the priest or, or finding Samuel. Um, rather, the people just crumble, as I said, and they hide themselves. Now, in the caves, that's okay, that's fine in and of itself, but then, and in holes, and in rocks, that's the, that's the like, um, animals, that's the, the language, like, they're, they're hiding like animals. Um, so, in their faithlessness, their fear drives them to behave and act not as people made in the image of God, certainly not as sons and daughters of God, um, as Israelites proper, but here as, uh, as subhuman, as almost animals crawling into the, into the caves and the holes and in rocks, and it goes on and gets worse, and in tombs and in cisterns. Cisterns can, cisterns can be um, are like wells or pits, but even in that language, pit, there's something poetic there. Pit or morass or abyss or, uh, abyss or um, you know, something like that it can be symbolic. So in the tombs, they're going amongst the dead, that is the unclean places, um, places forbidden in, by God's law for them to go. And then uh, cisterns too being, um, you know, potentially like poetically the abyss. So like subhuman, animalistic, place of the dead, place of demons, like that's what's going on here. I mean, in one sense concretely, and in another sense symbolically, it's all being depicted here that this is, this is a spiritual problem. Even though they're viewing it as a physical problem, as a military problem, it's a spiritual problem. Uh, they are not trusting that the Lord will deliver them. And we're going to even hear this from the mouth of Jonathan soon, heroically speaking to this point, that, look, the Lord gives the victory whether through the hands of many or through the hands of few. And this faith that Jonathan had, um, the people certainly did not have, as evidenced here. So, uh, you know, again back to verse 6, just to get the full sense. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, verse 7, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Yeah, this is just flat running away. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Yeah, if we look back, if you look back on page 365, you can see in the map where they're heading off to the east. If, again, if you have a Lutheran study Bible, if you don't, you, you should get one. They're excellent. But you can see, yeah, you can see their gad, um, how they're trucking off to the east there. You know, which in which it visually is like they're being driven out of their part of the 
promised land. The Philistines are over on the coast of the Great Sea, um, and so they are, uh, they are in retreat, giving the promised land up from behind them. So that, that too becomes a, a kind of climactic act in showing the, uh, the apostasy and unfaithfulness of the people. Okay, so all the people followed him trembling. I mean, that's like, like Saul's leadership isn't much and the people aren't much. And because they don't trust in the Lord, they're not living by faith but by sight, and so they're trembling. Okay, what do they do in the midst of these dire circumstances? Excuse me. Chapter 13, verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. So apparently Samuel had said, look, I'll come to you. It'll be in seven days. But seven days came and went, and there was no Samuel. So Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, and I think the hymn there is Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. Now, this may not look like much, but again, this is a full usurpation of the, of the priestly or prophetic office, really properly, Samuel's office. And not only a usurpation of it, but it's just, it's showing an ex opera operato mindset, like by the doing of the thing itself, like a, a complete cynicism toward God. As if, as if God isn't in control, as if there isn't a proper order, as if God hasn't ordained Sim, Samuel, as if in, in Saul's mind, it's just, well, i got to push these buttons to get this result. Like, this is all stupid. It's all a waste of time. I should have done this on day one. And if I just do this thing, then everything, the stars will all be aligned and God will be on my side. And it's treating God like he's a... a you know, like a, a vending machine or a, or a computer program or like something that can just be manipulated. He, he is not viewing God as the living God. He is not viewing God as in total and complete control. He's not viewing God's order as important. And this, by the way, is, is probably one of the biggest things that we as, as church in the West really, really need to grapple with in these times where we see the decline of the church all around us. It's like there's two roads before us, and one is pragmatism, Saul style, and the other is faithfulness. And we have a choice which way we're going to go whether that gives us numerical success or not, whether that gives us any kind of institutional success or not. I'm just talking about the people of God in this particular time, in this particular place. We can act as, as Saul. We can act with cynicism that God isn't in control. Um, and we are just going to take things into our own hands and we're going to ignore his, that he's the living God. We're going to um, ignore that he's got an order, ignore that he's got a purpose, ignore that... Um, he is one to be dealt with anything other than, hey, check, check the boxes and get on with what really matters. Um, let's just manipulate and push and do what we want to do. That's totally the attitude of Saul when he views insurmountable forces before him. If we're going to learn anything from Saul today, it's that we need to be patient. We need to repent of our cynicism. 
we need to realize that God is the living God, that He is in control, perfect control. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. He's not worried. He's not fretting. We need to respect Him, respect His order, be faithful to His word. And then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. But there's two ways of conducting yourself in this life, and that's what this narrative is showing us. There's the way of Saul, and there's the way of Jesus. And we want to be very clear as we're looking at insurmountable forces arrayed against the church here in the West, that we're following in the way of Jesus, bearing witness faithfully no matter the outcome, in humility and in full respect toward the living God, not slipping into cynicism, pragmatism, and all these other things we're going to see infect Saul and the people. Okay, a bit of a digression there. I, I, I'm sorry, but I hope that that uh, rings true. So, verse, uh, yeah, verse 9, we have Saul simply saying, you know, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So, just takes matters into his own hand, uh, unlawfully, disrespectfully. Verse 10, As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? <laughs> uh, the study notes says that it makes, I think the study notes suggest that Samuel might have been like hiding somewhere, <laughs> waiting to see if, if uh, Saul's going to do this. So Samuel putting him to the test. I don't know if that's true. I don't exactly see that in the text myself. It seems to me that he simply just arrives later than he had intended, and Saul has taken matters into his own hand, and Samuel calls him out and says, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I, this, is a, this is a study in self-justification and making excuses for oneself, all while blaming other people. Um, maybe rather than hash through that point by point, which I think would be a little tedious, we might simply see here that um, rather, than, rather than repenting and coming clean um, and just saying, you're right, how could I have done this thing, I was rash, uh, Saul continues in his impenitent way. Saul is not so different here than Peter, who, if you remember, um, when they saw when they, the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm, Peter said, "Lord, um, you know, call me out to you." And the Lord called him. And as Peter's going, um, the text says that he, he takes his eyes off of the Lord. And he, I think it's he sees, it may be that he hears, but I think it's that he sees uh, the winds and the waves. And there's this, there's this great thing going on like where, you're, where your eyes go off Jesus and on to the problems. And that's precisely when Peter starts to sink. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and pays attention to 
the problems all around him. And if that isn't a parable for our times, I don't know what is. But you see that with Saul too here, don't you? That his eyes aren't on the Lord. His eyes are, as he plainly says, I saw that the people were scattering from me. All right? He sees all his congregation emptying out. He sees um, the, this, uh, his people who he needs to wage war with him scattering and, and chickening out. And, and um, he, then he blames the prophet. <laughs> you didn't come when you were supposed to. And he's talking about seeing the Philistines and how the Philistines were going to come down. And he was, and he hadn't, and then this faux piety of, I hadn't yet sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself <laughs> and offered the burnt offering, which of course he didn't. There was no need for him to do so. All right, well, Samuel's not going to have any of it, of course. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. I wish I love that when you put Samuel's language together. What have you done? That's the first thing he says. The next thing he says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And again, this has to do with the respecting of uh, Samuel's office and Saul's grab for power and, and once again this impulse like as if, as if God can be manipulated into into him doing what we want um, in, in this crass and, and uh, faithless way. Um, that's not the case. So, um, yeah, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Um, now, this is interesting, very interesting. In one sense, um, forever can just mean an indefinite period of time. You know, I'm going to establish your, your kingdom forever for an indefinite period of time. But in a deeper sense, this is exactly the language that's used for David, where, excuse me, where, where God says to David, I, I, your, your throne will be established forever. And of course, um, that's, that's speaking of the, the line of Christ. And, you know, there's, there's kind of this question here of, like, in what, sense, in what sense would Saul's throne and Saul's kingdom um, been fulfilled in Christ? Uh, well, we don't know because Saul uh, is, is guilty of apostasy and great sin and turning away from the Lord in, in complete unfaithfulness. And so... Uh, his kingdom is, is taken from him. It's not going to be reflective of, or, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to be abusive of the language. Um, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. This isn't going to happen. Um, in fact, now we can't even imagine how it would have happened. But it sort of was in the plans. It was what um, the Lord had in mind for Saul, but Saul apostatized and turned away. So again, um, Samuel continues, and, and here we are in the middle of 13. Uh, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. See, the, I mean, the plan was your kingdom will continue, and it will reflect the reality of the Messiah who does indeed reign forever. Um, but now Saul is cut off. And isn't that the case? I mean, we view Saul as, uh, as an unfaithful king. 
no doubt. So, verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here's the first reference to David. Again, if we're not really paying attention to the time that passes, you know, and again, it's not clear in the text. The text doesn't make it particularly clear that time is passing. Then this all seems to happen very fast. Like no sooner does is Saul really like formalized as king in front of the people, and he he makes this mistake with the offering, and the Lord's telling him his his uh, you know his kingdom is now going to come to an end, and uh, he's going to be replaced. That's, I mean, that's not actually how it plays out in, in, terms of a, in terms of a history. There's much more time. And again, these events and this particular event is representative of the failings of Saul. This is just sort of the, the crescendo and climax of his unfaithfulness. And thus comes this rebuke from the Lord through the prophet Samuel. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out, sought out a man after his own heart. Which is interesting because this is always a little bit enigmatic. What does it mean for David to be a man after his own heart? Um, in the immediate context here, how is it that Saul is not a man after the Lord's heart? Well, as we've said, he's cynical toward the Lord. He doesn't respect the office of Samuel. He doesn't respect the sacrifices. Uh, he views things pragmatically. We've got to do this to get God on our side. Let's get it out of the way so we can get on with things. Um, pragmatic, cynical, I mean, those are the last. So then what is a man after, after um, the Lord's heart? Again, just taking the data from this context, obviously there's more data when we get to the person of David. But just the data from this context, a man after the Lord's heart would be someone who genuinely loves and respects the Lord. Someone who's genuinely willing to die and have the whole country die if that's what it takes to be faithful to the Lord. We're, of course, going to see this very thing come up with Jonathan where he's willing to die if it's in service to the Lord and or the Lord's people. Um, Jonathan, in, in this respect, is much more a man after the Lord's heart than Saul. Um, David, too. So it's going to be a respecter of God. It's going to be a respecter of God's and a lover of God's uh, order and the offices he's instituted and the ways of the Lord, not just paying a lip service to these things, but that these things are it. They are unto themselves. They're not a means to an end. They are the end. Yeah, as I've rambled on long enough, I think that's exactly as I want to say it. That, that's, that Saul is seeing the Lord and sacrifices and the priestly and prophetic offices, they're just a means to an end. And that end is his conquest and his victory. I, what a, sometimes our, I think our missionary zeal gets turned exactly that way. Like we're all trying to build these big churches with lots of people and... Um, and our conquest, and we want all this success, and we end up paying lip service to the Lord, um, treating the Lord and His things as a means to an end, whereas a man after God's own heart sees these things as the end in and of themselves. 
God is an end unto himself. He, he is worthy to be praised regardless if that has any pragmatic value. He is, willing, he is worthy to be respected and loved and worshipped even if, even if that means uh, you know, disaster. He is not a means to an end. He, he is an end unto himself. Nothing else matters. So I think these are all things we can really, really take home and take to heart our, ourselves as we look and consider how it is that Saul fails to be a man after God's own heart and, and who it is that then the Lord seeks to um, replace Saul with. Um, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, has to be antithetical to, to Saul in this instance. Continuing, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So a reminder that the people do not belong to Saul. They belong to the Lord. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I mean, that's just it. It's, repeat, it's a repetition of verse uh, 13. It's disobedience. And who knows how many countless times Saul was disobedient in these, in these manifest ways. And now um, finally the Lord has enough and says, that, that's it, enough is enough, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, again, the Lord through the prophet Samuel offering this rebuke to Saul. Verse 15, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, sorry, the verse doesn't end there. Uh, next paragraph, which probably shouldn't be a paragraph. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So as the study note points out then, like, because of the delay, uh, that is the delay of Samuel, the number of troops with Saul had thinned. Humanly speaking, his growing impatience was understandable, yet he had failed to wait for the Lord's schedule. And so what's really being emphasized in this verse is, you know, Samuel departs and Saul goes up, and Saul's still just got a fraction of the people, and he's got no promise from the Lord. Verse 16, And Saul and Jonathan his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward uh, Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So they're encamped, but now they're sending out these raiding parties that are, of course, you know, raping and pillaging and making life miserable for Israel. Verse 19, we get some more detail here as to the concrete predicament and the circumstances of that predicament. Um, we've already mentioned that Israel doesn't have chariots, and they're woefully behind in terms of technology. Here we see probably even to a greater degree, how far behind they are and what a disadvantage they are at. Verse 19, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. 
I mean, that's just shocking and hard to imagine, but that's how it was. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves sword, swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, um, which is kind of like a hoe. It's, I guess it's like um, somewhere between a pickaxe and a hoe. That's what a mattock is. His axe and his sickle. So what do you have to do if you're an Israelite and you need your tools sharpened? You don't have a blacksmith anywhere in your country. The Philistines know this, so they're not allowing any blacksmiths over to Israel, nor are they allowing that technology to go over to Israel. They're requiring the Israelites to come over, drop their tools off. No doubt this, is, this, is, this sharpening is done in a clandestine matter, so, manner so that the Israelites can't figure it out. And then... To add insult to injury, um, look, look in verse 21, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. In other words, not only do they have this technology, they have a monopoly on this technology, and so they can charge exorbitant rates so that Israel lacks the technology, has to go for their, these basic tools, these basic needs, and then, um, gosh, I can't help but see parallels to our own context where you know we're so economically beholden to China in terms of production and all of this stuff. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's some, to be some differences to be sure, but some parallels. And then uh, the Philistines can... Um, charge as much as they want, and the Israelites have to pay. So the Israelites are lacking just in terms of basic weapons. They don't have swords and spears. I mean, they've, got, they've probably got slings and clubs and whatever else you can muster. I think the study note even gives you some ideas somewhere in here if you're really interested in what they might have had. Oh yeah, bows and arrows and slingshots. It's the study note on verse 22. Okay, verse 22 then, So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. So, you know, you've got the king and the king's son with swords and that's it. It's not very good. You may have, you may have here two di very different leadership styles, two very different warrior styles, two very different you know, like sword bearers, if you will. Um, that, may be the, that may be the intent of the narrative in giving us all this data, not merely to tell us how far behind Israel was, but that, at, that, that you have this almost like where, where just the history almost takes on the form of a parable, and you've got these two types You've got these two men with swords, uh, the, the type and man that is Saul and the type and man that is Jonathan. And so in, in what's to come, then we're all, all the more to see these two uh, as types of what it is to be faithful in the case of Jonathan and unfaithful in the case of Saul. Chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave 
uh, which this, um, the ESV note says this might be under the pomegranate tree. We don't know. There are giant pomegranates. It could have even been a grove of pomegranates that offered some amount of shelter. Who knows? Um, we don't know exactly. But Saul was staying in the pomegranate cave, as the ESV has it, at uh, Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. We keep seeing the number 600, and these 600 men, they're, they're vastly outnumbered. We get a little more detail. Verse 3, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. That's the point. Eli. So in giving us this detail, the narrator is linking uh, Eli, who of course was deposed from his office and the line cut off, with Saul, who is going to be deposed from office and his line cut off. Uh, so the failure of the house of Eli and the failure of the house of Saul, which again, broadly speaking, in terms of deeper theological themes, you have the failure of the priestly office and the failure of the, of the kingly office. And so these pointing us to the Lord who will himself have to be our king embodied and not only our king but also our priest and thus do, what e do for us what Eli and Saul and their houses could not do. So these failures here very much pointing us toward uh, Christ Jesus as our true high priest and true king. So that's, that's probably what's behind these details here, especially giving us the lineage of Ahijah that goes all the way back to Eli. Um, so just, um, yeah, picking up right after that phrase of Eli in the middle of verse 3, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. And of course, uh, yeah, where's the study note on the ephod? This has come up before. This is a garment generally worn by the high priest. Okay, Samuel also worn one, uh, wore, wore one, and then it's used in consulting the Lord too, and though we don't know much about that. All right, we continue then with the narrative at the last um, sentence of verse 3, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other Seneh. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Um, I think... Yeah... I'm not certain about that. Uh, we're, later on in this, in this chapter, we're given, we're given this view that the, the reason why Jonathan's able to have some, some success against a far greater number is the place from which he's fighting is narrow. And so, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're fighting 20 men if you can fight each one one at a time. Uh, you know, just exhaustion then becomes, if your skill's better, exhaustion becomes a limiting factor. Um, but there's, that's indicated, it seems to be, in verses coming. And so I was wondering if this was an early indication of that. But I don't know. I don't know for certain. And I would have to spend too much time looking. So I'm just going to move on. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, 
Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Um, now, these uncircumcised is the same way of saying unbelievers. Of course, they view, the Israelites at this time view the world the same way we Christians do today. Namely, we're all one race and one people. We're all offspring of Adam. Adam was given the promise of the Messiah, the one who is going to crush the serpent's head. And all of Adam's family was taught about this Messiah. And the whole faith of Adam's family is faith in this coming Messiah, born of the woman. And those that turn away are, are unbelievers. Then when, when the unbelievers um, take over and have such prominence and influence and control over the earth, God finally gets so sick of it, he washes it away with the flood, and we restart with Noah. Well, Noah and seven others, and they all believe in this promise. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of this coming Messiah, this one who will be our righteousness. And so Noah and his family, they're all, they're all Christian. They're all looking for the Christ, the Messiah. And then you see that that, I mean, that spreads down the generations to Abraham. But as it spreads, many of that family uh, reject that gospel, reject that Christian faith, and apostatize, and, and thus become enemies of the people of God. And so this continues up, in, up into Abraham, and Abraham with circumcision, and then the circumcision really starts, it begins, okay, this is the people of God proper, and uh, we are all those who, who believe in the word of the Lord and the coming Savior, the seed uh, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so, so that's, like, that's what's going on in terms of... Um, Yeah, pardon me for just one second. Yeah, that's what's going on then in terms of the uncircumcised. The uncircumcised are unbelievers, those who have rejected their family, those who have rejected the faith, and those two are one, of course, and rejected the people of God. So you have to understand that that's what's going on here. I suppose like the danger from our view is just seeing them as like, not of the same nation, and thus you could almost see this as sort of a, uh, maybe even a, like a racist or uh, nationalistic type statement or something. I don't know, but it's not that. It's a theological statement. These are people who have rejected the Lord and rejected the household of the Lord. So, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Aha! Now we see the huge contrast between Jonathan and Saul, between faithfulness and cynicism. Um, and we're going to see Jonathan put things in the hands of the Lord where Saul snatches them out of the hands of the Lord and does the sacrifices himself. So we're going to see two opposites here. In, in Saul, we're going to see everything that Christ is not. In Jonathan, we're going to see positive examples of what Christ our King is. So, uh, Jonathan, you know, is out on his own with his armor bearer, um, showing great bravery, as he does elsewhere. Um, and look at his humility. It may be that the, I mean, again, his movement is theologically based, these uncircumcised. That was the long digression there. His move is theologically based. Um, look at the humility. It may be that the Lord will work for us. 
Okay, if anyone's going to give us the victory, it's going to be the Lord. There's like no pragmatism. There's no cynicism. There's not even a reckoning of, well, we've got more strength than they do. It's just trust in the Lord. And then he makes it plain, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I mean, how desperately the people of Israel at this moment need Saul to say that. They need Saul to look at the 600 and say, this is plenty. This is plenty. I think, it was, I think the Lord brought victory uh, with Gideon through 300. Look, we've got double that. If the Lord wants to give us the victory, we'll have the victory. Um, so, so how desperately that's needed but not given. And, and Jonathan here appears to be quite more a man after the Lord's heart than is Saul. Verse 7, And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So the armor-bearer, too, here, um, being right in, in step with, uh, with Jonathan. Verse 8, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So, as the study note points out, um, When the enemy dared him to take the more dangerous alternative, namely climbing the stony crags, he would take that as a sign from God. So that was the, that was the point. Um, again, a very different way of, than we commonly think today, but we're going to see this coming up with uh, um, the Urim and Thummim, that it's just, it's sort of like you present, like if this happens, then it's the Lord's will, if this happens, then it's not the Lord's will. And we've seen that earlier in this, uh, you know, in, in, I don't know if it was in Samuel or in Judges, but we've seen this kind of thing um, quite prevalent amongst God's people heretofore. And, you know, oh yeah, we saw it earlier in Samuel with the, uh, we even saw it with the Philistines kind of setting up that test. With the, with the ark getting brought back by the milk cows. So anyway, here, um, here Jonathan has basically set up a test. Look, if they come down to us, we're not going to go up to them. I, you know, it's, it's hard to say what the sense is. Like, like okay, are they going to retreat? Are they going to fight there? Like, who knows? We're not given any detail there, namely because the narrative moves in the other direction. If they call us to climb up the crags, to go up the heavier way, we will, to go up the harder way, we will, and that'll be a sign then that the Lord... Uh, wants us to uh, fight, and he's going to give them into our hands. So, anyway, that's the setup. That's what's going to happen. Verse 11, So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. Obviously insulting, obviously demeaning, you know, like rats coming out of the holes or snakes coming out of the holes or something. Um, that's the insult given. Verse 12, And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. Which is like, we'll, te we'll teach you a lesson, I guess would be the, uh, the PG way of putting that. Um, yeah, so come on up and 
will take care of you. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So it, it happens just the way that Jonathan had set up, and, and thus this is uh, quite evident to Jonathan the Lord's will. And up they go. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. So this is a very difficult, I mean, if you're on your hands and feet trying to get up this rocky, craggy area, it must be difficult going. And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. In other words, Jonathan took the lead, his armor bearer was behind, and uh, Jonathan was doing most of the work, but between the two of them, uh, they, that is the soldiers in the garrison, fell before them. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are quite successful. Verse 14, And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as, as it were half a furrow's length of an acre of land. Uh, yeah, so it killed the 20 men within. And again, this is the reference I was talking about earlier to the narrow passage. And I'm thinking these are, these are definitely different. Um, but in verse 14, if you look at the study note, um, the narrow passage at the top made it easy for a few men to engage many. Uh, God gave strength and victory to Jonathan and his armor bearer. So half a furrow's length is literally half a yoke, half the area that a yoke of oxen could plow in one day. So it was narrow enough that their numbers were, uh, weren't an issue. I'm not sure it was necessarily like shoulder width. I think that's an exaggeration. Um, but it was a narrow enough area where you know, he could probably get a wall behind him and his armor bearer and they could fight successfully. Okay, verse 15, and there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. So this, this skirmish at the garrison, uh, you know, the dead, um, the 20 dead, this uh, has a ripple effect. There's panic that spreads throughout the camp, the field, and among all the Philistine people. The garrison and, uh, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. So, I mean, obviously what's going on, like at this point, definitively is supernatural. This victory that God gave Jonathan coincides with the panic of the people, coinciding with a great earthquake that even drives that panic up all the more, all the further. So that this is, this is then quite the event. And, you know, this is amazing because in the same way that the Lord fights through the Ark of the Covenant, now he's fighting through Joshua. The Lord is still defending his people, fighting for his people. He is still the champion of his people. Meanwhile, the faithless king is sort of like hiding out, thinking he's doomed with his 600. So this is quite an image of the Lord con continuing as Israel's true king. And again, there's no reason in our minds why we should have, when I say the Lord, we should have anyone in our minds other than Christ Jesus. This is Christ Jesus, the true king of God's people, being faithful now through uh, the hand of Joshua. Or, excuse me, Jonathan. Boy, I hope that's the first time I've made that mistake. <laughs> okay, Jonathan. So then, uh, verse 16 and the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. I mean, this is incredible. These are all the people that Saul fears, this terrible, great and terrible army that Saul fears, and they're all running here and there and dispersing, and there's panic, and it's all caused by two men. 
such as the power of the Lord through Jonathan and his uh, armor bearer. Verse 17, Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, now Ahijah, of course, is the, um, the priestly figure back in verse 3, the descendant of Eli. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, which of course has foreboding because this is exactly what happened they, when they brought the ark without consulting the prophet or without consulting God. Um, they just simply brought the ark as a good luck charm into battle with the Philistines. It's terrible. They lose um, 30,000, I think, in that instance, and the ark is captured. You remember all that, and that's the fall of Eli's house. So with this, I mean, this is fateful. This is dramatic. This is where in the movie you've got the cutscenes going back to the demise of Eli and the fall of 30,000 and the, and the ark being captured because of the faithless, cynical use of it. And now you've got the same thing going on here. Like this is a, this is a momentous thing that's happening. Um, for the ark of God, yeah, so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. Now how could this be? Again, this is, this is the instigation of the Lord. Um, through Jonathan, through the earthquake, this is the Lord's doing. There's just no, there's nothing else going on here. It's completely miraculous. It's the Lord um, winning the victory, the true king winning the victory for Israel. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, this doesn't look like much to us, but as the study note points out, Saul felt that waiting for the Lord's directive might jeopardize his chance for victory. In other words, Saul is seeing like the people scattering, and he's thinking the moment to strike is now, and, uh, and I've just got this one moment, but he's got this priest doing his thing, and he says to the priest, withdraw your hand, which in other words means... I don't need God's blessing. I don't need to wait for this. Now is the moment to strike. I can see it with my eyes. I'm going for it. So this is a big deal. As the study note said, um, Saul felt that waiting for the Lord's directive might jeopardize his chance for victory. Such interruption of a priestly activity was unprecedented and unthinkable. So again, you can see the pragmatism, the living by sight rather than living by faith that has just so thoroughly infected Saul and frankly, thoroughly infects all of the church's faithless leaders, those men who live not by faith but by sight, making capitulations to the world um, while, while uh, being utterly disrespectful to God and thus hastening their demise. Okay, on that bright and shiny note, um, Let's simply end for the day. I can see I've kept us a minute over. End for the day there. Next week, we'll pick up here um, right around this section, chapter 14, uh, verse 20, verse 21, right in there. The Lord be with you.